Brush up your Shakespeare. Start quoting him now. Brush up your Shakespeare. And no women, you will wow. Just declaim a few lines. Hello, Shannon Riley here, inviting you to join me every Sunday here on KSCF as I talk Shakespeare on Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. Every Sunday at 8 and 8, archived here at Kansas 785 Live, as well as on my own website, ShannonJRiley.com. Join me and let's talk a little bit about the bar on KSCF every Sunday, 8 to 8. listening to KSEF, a digital broadcast in Topeka, brought to you by 785 Magazine. Learn more at 785live.com. And now it's time for Shannon Shakespeare Sunday with your host, my daddy, Shannon Riley. Hello, 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 and welcome to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75 Live. I'm Shannon Riley, and it is my pleasure to come to you as your host to talk to you about the works of William Shakespeare every Sunday on the 8th. I want to thank my uh, darling daughter, Bibi, for introducing me today as we continue our journey through Shakespeare's complete works, and we're really getting towards the end now. We're in the year 1608, and a very, well probably unheard of play to many of you, called Coriolanus. Now, Coriolanus is one of those titles not a lot of people know, and that's understandable. It came later in his life, and I really do believe you can pinpoint a little bit clearer in Coriolanus when it was written to around 1608. Some people post it as between 1605 and 1610, but there was a lot happening in 1608 that seems to appear in the pages of Coriolanus. Coriolanus, although not produced very often, is a good play. It's considered Shakespeare's last tragedy. Some people disagree. Some people think it was Timon of Athens, which I'm going to talk about next week. That's the next one up on the dock. But it's very possible that it's not Timon of Athens because it, it's more of a problem play. It's very hard to classify Timon of Athens as a tragedy or a comedy or even a romance. So... Uh, but I'll put that conversation off for next week, and we're going to focus on this last tragedy, which, which is truly a tragedy, and that is Coriolanus. What's unique about Coriolanus here is that we Shakespeare once again goes back to his roots in Roman structure. He likes his stories from Rome, from Greece. He likes to dramatize these stories. This source was most likely come from The Life of Coriolanus, which was by Thomas North in his translation of Plutarch's The Lives of the Noble Grecians and Romans, which was written around 1579. But there's a reason why Coriolanus was written by Shakespeare at this time. It's considered Shakespeare's most political play. Now, at first, when I first started thinking about that, I thought, well, Richard III is pretty darn political. Um, Henry the fourth is very political. But this play isn't making a statement about political games being played by people in the play. It's politics in general. In fact, Shakespeare is so good at writing both sides of every argument here that this play has been produced as a reason why you should not trust democracies, as well as a reason why you should not trust autocratic societies. 
It's, it's really a fascinating play in that respect, and its plotline is rather simple considering it's a Shakespeare play. Usually there's a secondary story, another group of characters that you want to follow through the course of the story. But in this particular case, Shakespeare focuses really entirely his lens on the story of Coriolanus. It's not a long play, it's one of his shorter plays, and it's just had a recent movie that was celebrated by Ralph Fiennes. Matter of fact, Rotten Tomatoes gave it a 93% fresh, so it's a very good movie if you get a chance to see it. The reason why I want to talk about Coriolanus, though, other than just it's the next show in our list, is it also illustrates where Shakespeare is in life. It's one of those things that if you don't do my cardinal rule, which is to remember when Shakespeare wrote these plays and who he was writing to, you can get lost in the shuffle. A lot of conspiracies come up. Did Shakespeare write Shakespeare? All of it I find to be bunk. But this particular play really illustrates where Shakespeare is at this time in his life. And there's reference to things that are happening in London at the time. And that's why we can pretty clearly date it to around 1608. Now this makes it one of last Shakespeare's plays. Now last week I was talking about Pericles and it being a romance and how we're moving now into romances. And we are, but we circle back for these next two plays into this idea of tragedy. And why he goes back to tragedy is going to come up in the writing of Coriolanus. So, Coriolanus is our topic today, and as always, I like to turn to my boy, who is going to tell us about his favorite topic, and that is... And now, the Shakespeare Quote of the Week. That's right, Shakespeare's Quote of the Week. And before I go into these quotes, I, I, since you probably don't know the story of Coriolanus, it is about a Roman general. He's not king, he's not a leader other than he leads these uh, Roman armies, but he is not really a political animal, and yet he gets power thrust at him. And he is a powerful man, he is a soldier, he's the kind of guy who would run into battle with his sword drawn, kill everyone in sight, and keep going until the mission is resolved. He is a fighter, a warrior. But he is not a liar. He's also immensely arrogant. He doesn't have any faith in the people beneath him. He doesn't believe in the plebeians, the normal citizens of Rome, as being worthy of anything other than common work. He sees them as slaves, as chattel. He does not consider the average man his equal. He's above them. And it's this arrogance that really brings about this horrible tragedy for Coriolanus. And he is raised by a very powerful woman by the name of Volumnia. And Volumnia is his mother, and she is incredibly strong-willed and a very political animal herself. This is the first quote that I want to share with you. It's from Act 1, Scene 3, and it's his mother speaking. And she says to Coriolanus, Had I a dozen sons... Each in my love alike, and none less dearer than mine and my good Marcius. By the way, his real name is Marcius. I had rather had eleven die nobly for their country than one voluptuously surfeit out of action. In other words, if you aren't worthy of fighting, you don't deserve to live. And this is how she's raised her child. Cicillinus, who's another character in the show, he's actually a tribute. He's a, he's a guy who's been voted by the plebeians to represent them to the patriarchs of, of the Roman Empire. He has a great quote in Act 2, Scene 1. He says, Nature teaches beasts to know their friends. <laughs> I love that quote because it's a great message in it, in that you need to trust your instincts. He also goes on in Act 3, Scene 1 to say, What is a city but its people? 
He's a very populist character, and he believes the plebeians should be in charge of Rome. He believes the common man should be in command, and he votes for pure democracy. It's about when this play takes place, too, because it's right after Rome decides to move to a democracy and has exited all of its kings, all of its emperors, and has moved to being ruled by the Senate. And this is where our tragedy is set. There is also another quote from Volumnia that I really love. It's from Act 3, Scene 2, and it's, Action is eloquence. This is Volumnia to the nth degree. She believes in absolute action, absolute power, take the world by storm. And that's what she's raised Coriolanus to do. Coriolanus finds himself exiled for Rome during the course of the play. I'm going to tell you about how that comes about. But he has a great quote that I've heard other places. I don't know if you have. But it's a quote that says in Act 3, Scene 3, there is a world elsewhere. He leaves Rome to find a new place to live. When Coriolanus is expelled from Rome, as a matter of fact, he even says, I am not expelled from Rome. Rome was expelled from me. He has such a sense of entitlement and such arrogance. And that's part of the big tragedy that is coming ahead. And finally, there's this quote from his enemy, Aphidius. He is his enemy at the top of the show, and some believe his lover at the end of the show. And it's Aphidius who brings about the tragedy, who in Act 5, Scene 6 says, My rage is gone, and I am struck with sorrow. It's that ultimate rage that also comes into play in Coriolanus. So, what is the story of Coriolanus? Let's start a synopsis here so you can kind of keep up with all the things we're going to talk about on the other side and why I think this is one of those plays that has a thumbprint of a man by the name of William Shakespeare. All right, so our play takes place in Rome, roughly around the 5th century AD, and it's right after the kings have been expelled from Rome and a whole new democracy is trying to take form. But there's problems. There is a multitude of citizens who are revolting. There's a shortage of food in the land, and the plebeians believe that the patriarchs don't even care that their children are starving. So they are marching onto Rome and demanding that patricians do something about this horrible famine that has gripped their land. Now, they are met by a very young and popular aristocrat by the name of Menius Agrippa. And Menius tries to calm the crowd down, and he does a very good job of it, telling him that we hear you, we're going to answer your cries, we're going to take care of this problem, please be patient with us. Well, that's quickly interrupted when an arrogant young general by the name of Caius Martinus enters. Caius criticizes the tribunes, which are two men who have been voted by the plebeians to represent their issues. It's Cessanius Velitus and Junus Brutus. These two men are standing before the crowd trying to speak needs of the plebeians, and they are immediately shut down by Caius Martinus. He considers them chattel. He considers them common people. He has complete disdain for them. And he whips up the crowd in a fury against them. Now, in the midst of all of this, before anything can go worse in this class struggle, they learn that there is an army known as the Volotians who are threatening Rome. They are marching on Rome right now, and they're being led by an old enemy of Caius, and that is Aphidius, who is moving to take over Rome. Immediately, Caius leaves to grab his army, and to meet this marching enemy in its tracks. Well, Caius is very successful. Not only is he able to stave off this revolt, but he's able to march on the city of Coralai, which is their stronghold, and pretty much single-handedly bring it to its knees. 
So he is given the title of Coriolanus after this point, ruler and conqueror of Coralai, this enemy city. Well, in Act 2, we find his mother, Volumina, who is very excited about her son's valor and his position to gain power within Rome. She discusses the power that can come to her son with his wife, Virgilia. Well, when Caius shows up, or Coriolanus now, and he has single-handedly won this victory, it's decided he should become a member of the consul. That's a group of people who give advice and have power that they yield to the Senate in order to set policy and political structure. This is not something that interests Coriolanus in the least. Even though it means a lot of power, he is a soldier, and he does not really want to do this, particularly since there is a standard custom that anyone who wants to be consul in a position of authority over the Publians must go to the Publians dressed in weeds, dressed in sackcloth, and beg their forgiveness for any sins and ask them to please, please vote in favor of him. Now, in all truth, the Publian vote really doesn't matter to the patricians. It's just this custom that Coriolanus is expected to do. And his mother says, just go do this. You don't have to mean it. You don't really have to be beside anyone and tell any truth. You just got to say, please vote for me. Coriolanus hates this. And he moves to the citizen and immediately almost rebukes them. Starts to say he is better than the rest of them. Just vote for me. I know what's good for you. Don't listen to anyone else. At first, the Publians are in favor of him. He's a war hero. He can possibly bring great stability to their country. However, his old enemies, the tribunes who he fought against in the first act, speak against him and the Publians turn against him. He gets so enraged that he completely viscerates them and Coriolanus calls them all pigs. They're beneath him. It so upsets the Senate that they vote to banish Coriolanus from their city and they send him away. This is Act 3, by the way. Coriolanus just cannot make peace with the Tribunes or the Plebeians, and after he's expelled from Rome in rage and disgust, he has nowhere else to go. So he decides to go to the Volition city of Antium. There he will find Aphidius, his old enemy. Aphidius admires Coriolanus. He has respect for his former enemy, and he welcomes Coriolanus with open arms, and together they decide to attack and conquer Rome and reestablish the emperors of old. All right, that's the first three acts of Coriolanus. I'm going to pick up on the rest of the story on the other side and some critical analysis. So I'll see you on the other side of William Shakespeare's Coriolanus. I'm Shannon Riley. You're listening to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF, KSEF Digital Radio, and I'll be right back. Right here is where I would say now for a brief word from our sponsors, but I'm just sitting here waiting for you to put words in my mouth. So for advertising opportunities, go to 785live.com. Hello, 
and welcome back to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday right here on KSEF Digital Radio 75Live.com. Thank you so much for tuning in to this, the only half hour that is dedicated to the works of William Shakespeare in Northeast Kansas. So I'm really excited to have you all listening in. Hey, I'd like to hear from you though. If you'd like to reach out to me, ask me a question, or maybe have an idea for a future show, you can reach me at ShannonJRiley.com. That's ShannonJRiley.com. Riley is spelled R-E-I-L-L-Y. You can send me a message there and let me know what you think of the show or if you have any questions. Also, check out my website at ShannonJRiley.com. I've got some great short stories there, some great plays, some short films, and I would love more people to do my plays. So check it out. I really appreciate it. Today, we're talking about Shakespeare's last true tragedy, Coriolanus, which is also considered his most political play by many scholars. Now, I'm not a scholar. I don't claim to be a scholar. I do happen to be somebody who really loves the works of William Shakespeare, and I love sharing my thoughts about them with all of you. Calling this a really true political play is really kind of difficult for me. It's all in how it is interpreted and reinterpreted by that director. Shakespeare's work here is so deftly done. This play has been used to tell the great tributes of authoritarian rule, as well as democracy. So you can really take this play so many different ways. And this is the gift that Shakespeare had, his way of being able to frame all arguments on both sides. All right, but let's finish talking about the particular story of Coriolanus. We were up to Act Four. Now, in Act Four, we've seen Coriolanus has been expelled from Rome. He's a great general, a great fighter. He did so much, he believes, for Rome, and he is arrogantly angry that he has been expelled from Rome. So angry, as a matter of fact, he's joined forces with his old enemy and has decided to invade Rome. Now, back in Rome, the Probleans are celebrating. They're so excited that even though they have this great famine that's going on, they're proud that their power was strong enough to have this vicious enemy of the Probleans expelled from Rome. They feel kind of proud and power-hungry at this particular point until it's learned that Coriolanus himself has joined up with the enemy and is planning to invade Rome and return it to its old days of an emperor. Now everybody in the city is in a panic. Everybody knows of the great power that Coriolanus has, his great ability as a general, his great ability as a fighter, and now that he's joined forces with the enemy, they're quite certain they could be doomed. So doomed, as a matter of fact, that Rome decides it's got to try to stop this from happening. They send two of Coriolanus's old buddies, Cominius and Menenius, all had to try and dissuade Coriolanus from this attack. But even these two old friends, these two old senators, fall short. He won't hear of it, and he tells him to go home and prepare to die. Well, next to come in is his own mother, Volumnia, and his wife, Virgilia, and even his own son. Now, this is the arrogance of Coriolanus. He's, going, he's planning to go in and just wipe out Rome and anyone in command, so much so that he's even threatening the lives of his mother, his wife, and his own son. That's how arrogant Coriolanus is. If Rome kicks him out, nobody deserves to live, even his own family. But they approach him, and they beg him to listen. And it's Volumnia who does the best work, persuading him that this is not the right action for a hero of Rome, that this is not how she raised him, and that he should be there for his country. Her speech finally reaches Coriolanus's ear. He admits that he is wrong, and he should not have done this, and he agrees to call off the attack and sues for peace to Rome. Now, in Act 5, Aphidius is furious that he learns that his old enemy, now friend, some people have even believed, now lover, has gone so far 
as to sue for peace without his approval. Aphidius is angry. He feels betrayed and he goes into a fight with Coriolanus. And of course, in the end, surprisingly, Aphidius kills Coriolanus. Once his anger is gone, Aphidius says, my anger has subsided, now I have only sorrow, and he agrees to take part in a funeral for the most worthy warrior, Coriolanus. And that's how our tragedy ends. No side story, there is some great clown roles that happen to be in Aphidius' army. They have some funny moments and some great lines, but it's really, really the story between Coriolanus, Aphidius, and his mother, Volumnia. Now, this is a departure for Shakespeare in a lot of ways. First of all, once again, you have the wife of the main character being completely undercut. This is something Shakespeare does in his plays. If there's a wife at all, usually there's no wife. I mean, I point it, there's no Mrs. Polonius. There's no Mrs. Lear. Shakespeare just doesn't have much affinity for marriage. And I think that really relates to the fact that Shakespeare himself, and I hate to say this, but Shakespeare himself did not love his wife. I don't think there was a genuine relationship there. But he is affected by his mother. Now, again, I want to point to some things that point that this play was written in 1608. And you need to remember when things are written. 1608 was the year Shakespeare's mother died. And I think there's a very important point. Here he's suddenly writing this character who is one of Shakespeare's most influential women. She is able to reach out and talk to the main character as a better, as a leer. This is very rare with women. Even Lady Macbeth had to watch how she approached Macbeth. But this mother is able to reach out to her son and talk to him in a way of authority. And that is rare. And it happens to be the same year Shakespeare's mother died. I think that's interesting. The other thing that I think is interesting is at the same time there was revolts happening in England. Farmers and peasants were revolting over the fact that common use land was now being bought up by the gentry and being fenced off. They were claiming that they were being robbed of their livelihood, that they would starve to death, and they were running out of food. Remember this play opens with the Bobleans screaming that the gentry just does not care about what's going to happen to them. And this storyline kind of drops off. Shakespeare uses it as a backdrop going into his own world and his own country that is facing this exact same problem, that these peasants are feeling a need to revolt. But there's an interesting treatment Shakespeare does of these people. He shows them as almost being wanton. There is a change in Shakespeare by 1608. Shakespeare is a man of the gentry. He's a gentleman. He's known as Master Shakespeare, and he's making money. And what's he doing with that money? Well, unlike his fellow actors and his fellow members of the Kingsmen, he's not having portraits done. He's not out carousing. He's buying land. And he's buying land in the North Countryside in Stratford-on-Avon. He is buying country land and fencing it off. He's part of that gentry problem that he mentions in the play. He is one of those guys. And he has a different feeling for it than he did when he was a lowly Glover's son. He's now a man that has a coat of arms. He owns the largest house in Stratford. He has servants for his family, and he's planning to retire and go back there. He does not write that sympathetically of the plebeians. He's much more in line with Coriolanus in some ways. 
He's almost arrogant. This is a fascinating thing when you say Shakespeare didn't write Shakespeare, and yet you find these fine moments that really relate to the life of William Shakespeare himself. There's no sign that this was a collaborative piece. This seems to be all Shakespeare. And he's writing alone and he's writing about a topic that is very important to him, political structure. Remember, he's not writing from a democracy. He has a king, King James. This is the Jacobean period. He doesn't know democracy and he couldn't possibly, even if he wanted to, write a play that supports democracy. That could get him in a lot of trouble with his patron, the king himself. No, 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 no. He's got to write plays that support the need for strong, authoritative government. And that's what he writes here. He is writing a play that says, listen, we need to all do our part and be responsible citizens. This question of what is it to be a good man, this question of what is it to be a good citizen, or what is it to be a good father, start to really encompass Shakespeare's work here. Coriolanus has a son. Shakespeare has two daughters. His son is dead by this point. But he still does this question of fathership, of what it's like to be a good father, exists within the argument given to Coriolanus of why he should call off this fight. So Coriolanus almost leads right into where Shakespeare is in life. But he's got a message for the leadership at the same time. He writes a character, Coriolanus, that cannot be reasoned with. He is angry. He is arrogant. And this arrogance that wields power will bring about his downfall. There's a message here to the kings to the authoritative relationship that exists in England at this time. You may be in power, but in order to stay in power, you cannot get arrogant. You've got to listen to reason. You've got to listen to the people around you. Shakespeare is again playing both sides. And I find it fascinating, fascinating that this is the case. Now, there's no evidence that this play was ever produced in Shakespeare's lifetime. Nothing exists, but it surely was. Those sort of records can get lost as all. Several plays of Shakespeare's may have been lost. So even though there's no reference of it ever being performed, it does appear in the first folio, meaning Hemings and Condal believe that this was genuinely a work of William Shakespeare that needed to be included. It suggests that the play itself was performed probably multiple times during Shakespeare's life. Now, on a side note, it's also very interesting, this male-to-male relationship that exists here. I've read many articles and even seen some books treating the subject of Shakespeare's sexuality. It's a hard thing to talk about because we really don't know. You can point at the sonnets and say he was writing these love poems to a gentle young lord. It should not be forgotten, however, that these sonnets he was being paid for. He was being asked to write. So he was being flowery to a man who had a great deal of power over him and was a patron. He also wrote sonnets, one sonnet at least to his wife, and in several others to the dark-haired lady, presumably a Jewish girl who he had fallen in love with. What his sexuality was is in question, and I understand that. But we cannot view the sexuality of the Elizabethan or Jacobean man in the same way we view 21st century men and women here today. Men walked holding hands in the streets because they were best friends. They would kiss each other goodbye. This just does not happen among straight men. So 
Questioning whether or not Shakespeare was this or was that doesn't really matter to me. But I do think it's fascinating that some treatment of this play have really showed that there was a sexual relationship between Aphidius and Coriolanus. It adds an interesting element, no doubt. It adds even a visceral, loving connection that actually makes Coriolanus seem human. He comes off as arrogant, difficult, and absolute ass at times. But you put in a love interest in there, even the male love interest, and suddenly you have a human being. You have someone who you can connect to. And it is very beautiful in a way that you have this relationship that could have existed between two enemies. Two enemies that came to respect each other for their prowess on the battlefield and who develop a really deep relationship afterwards. Anyway, that's the story of Coriolanus and that's some of the background that might have led into that play. Next week, we're going to be talking about Timon of Athens, which some people also think was a tragedy. I think it's a little more difficult to classify it that way. And we're also going to get back into the romances as we come close to the end of Shakespeare's great plays. I've really enjoyed revisiting these plays. I can't tell you how much I have because it's fun to revisit plays that when I first read them made me think about them over and over again, kept me up at night as I played out what could he possibly have meant? What is the ultimate story here? And that to me, the way that these works really come to life and really do mean so much more is when you think of them in the text of one man in London separated from his family, trying to make a living, doing a very good job of it, by the way, and writing some of the most passionate plays and poems the world has ever seen. So, thank you all for tuning in to Shannon Shakespeare Sunday. I'm here on KSEF Digital Radio. I hope you join me again next week as we continue in on our quest. And coming up to a year, a solid year now, uh, in the first week of October of the Shannon Shakespeare Shundays. I thank you all for tuning in. Take care. And as always, until we meet again, keep it barred to the bone. Bye-bye.